Hello, everyone. Today we're talking to Steve Collins, an associate professor at Stanford University in the Department of Mechanical Engineering. Steve holds the dubious honor of being my PhD thesis advisor. Steve is known for a lot of things, ranging from early days of building highly efficient walking robots to today where he's exploring all sorts of interesting human-in-the-loop paradigms to control wearable robotics more effectively. And there's lots more. Well, without further ado, welcome, Steve Collins. Hi, Steve. Hey, Josh. How's it going, man? Good to see you. Good. Yeah, long time no see. Thanks for uh, joining the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Good to be here. So I'd like to start off by uh, asking you to provide our audience with a 30,000-foot view of all the things you've done so far in your academic career. Sure. Well, I think you you hit on the high points in your intro there. So um, I, I got my start as an undergrad uh, joining projects to design really energy efficient walking robots based on passive dynamics. And um, then as a PhD student, I learned how to apply those ideas to human walking and biomechanics and started to work on designing prosthetic limbs. And then as a professor for the last few years, I've been I guess 13 years now, actually. Wow. We're getting older, Josh. Uh, uh, and then we're working on new methods for designing prosthetic limbs and exoskeletons, really a response to some of the failures of the projects in my PhD based on emulation uh, and human in loop optimization. And we can, I hope, hopefully, we'll dig into some detail on uh, any or all of those topics. Absolutely. Yeah. When I think of you, I think of your sort of obsession with energy efficiency. I, and I think this is like, a, it, it pervades all of your work. And, and I think it's a profound concept. I'm wondering if you could kind of explain uh, how this has captured uh, your interest, uh, obviously in the early days with robots, but today in, in helping people move more effectively is it is it the the kind of the the keystone uh in your opinion that's a great question so why why did energy efficiency capture my interest um i guess it's a, a pretty fundamental thing right you've got sort of your first law of thermodynamics unless we have some kind of nuclear reaction happening energy is conserved and uh so it's it's hard to get around. This is one of those constraints in life. So using less energy to complete a task, always better, everything else being equal, say. And um, and it's a, it's a proved a challenging problem in robots and in assistive devices, which is also to me appealing. It's really, it's an objective measure that's really hard to improve on. Um, but I, I guess also it, it, in my case, uh, my the reason, part of the reason I got so um, focused on energy costs, especially earlier in my career, is just where I started, which was in these walking robots. So, you know, I was an undergraduate student working in Andy Arena's lab at Cornell, and he showed these videos of passive dynamic walking robots in a dynamics course that I took, you know, for my required undergraduate degree. And I was just floored by these movies of these robots moving no motors no computers but this really fluid human-like movement and um using just a tiny amount of energy uh, harvested from gravitational potential energy as they walked down a ramp and for that project energy efficiency was 
the big goal. It was one of the, the main selling points of that approach to uh, getting a, a robot to walk. And so, you know, right from the outset, we were very focused on trying to develop the most energy efficient walking uh, robots in the world. And to get there, we made a lot of sacrifices in other objectives that you really care about, like robustness. These things fell down most of the time that you I tried to get them to walk and speed. They're quite slow compared to humans, but they were very, very efficient. And, you know, as I started to try to apply those techniques and ideas to devices that would be more directly beneficial to humans, you know, walking robots, May someday uh, they might find them in our houses uh, helping us out. Uh, they might be working this for um, older people and delivery robots and things. But for me, the more compelling way that this technology could really help people is uh, by improving mobility for people with disabilities. So, and and that means rehabilitation robots, uh, assistive robotic devices like exoskeletons and prosthetic limbs. So we started, you know, by trying to make prosthetic devices that reduce energy consumption because fatigue is a real problem for uh, people who with amputation. But of course, you know, the more you get into the field, the more people you talk to um, and the more clinical experts you talk to, you, you, the more you see that, yes, this is an important objective, but it's just one of many important mm-hmm. objectives. And and um, some goals are probably more important, like uh, comfort at the residual end for people with amputation. And there are many that are equivalently important speed and uh, balance. So uh, as we've gone along, we've started to address more and more of these objectives. And, you know, the long-term goal is to develop devices that simultaneously improve performance across a large set of objective measures of uh, performance and satisfaction with the right balance struck between them, perhaps depending on the user and their environment things like that. Makes sense. Yeah. When I think your average person who's not engaged in this field thinks of energy efficiency, you might think of global warming and the need to make cars more efficient or power generation more efficient and kind of stave off concerns about a a warming climate. In uh, wearable systems, I don't know if that's the case, but um, how do you see this you know, presumably the, the logic has something to do with people uh, today being unable to perform certain activities um, and experiencing as a result a diminished quality of life. Is it that if we had more efficient wearable robots, uh, they'd be more likely to be active and live happier, healthier lives? Yeah, well, of co- yeah, definitely. So the, you know, the first point about, um, reducing, say, carbon emissions, I think does apply to some degree. And some of our more recent work has been on new types of actuator uh, that can replace motors that that are really energy efficient. And we have some some work that's under review at the moment. Uh, I should probably get into too many details, but in demonstrating this sort of general purpose actuator that can save a lot of electricity, that could potentially apply to, say, industrial uh, assembly line robotics uh, applications and and you know self driving electric cars and things like that where uh, yeah you know actually there there is some better use of renewable electricity generated by solar or reduced use of uh, fossil fuels 
But mostly, the reason they want to save energy in the kinds of applications we work in, these wearable and mobile robots, is to be able to go farther with the same size battery or to have a smaller, cheaper, and less heavy battery in your system. And, and that, that is a real limitation. I, I, you know, I, there, there have been some careful user studies of early Bain's prosthetic lens suggesting that range of the device, you know, the amount of walking you can do before you have to recharge your batteries is a serious factor that influences uh, adoption or lack thereof uh, of those devices. So if we could get our prosthetic lens to run all day and let you walk as much as you want without needing to recharge or swap batteries, that would meaningfully improve the user experience. Interesting. This is anecdotal, so take it with a grain of salt. But I, I was reading an article recently about the uh, sort of energy impact of battery-powered scooters. And whoever wrote this article uh, had the viewpoint that actually uh, they had a harmful impact uh, in terms of global emissions because people were not switching from more sort of energy expensive modes of transit to the scooters they were switching from less energy expensive modes of transit uh to the scooters so basically they weren't switching from cars to scooters they were switching from walking to scooters it strikes me though that there there this could be one of the big opportunities with wearable devices uh because unlike a scooter, which is this big thing you need to store somewhere and charge and, you know, you can't take it upstairs and yada, yada. Uh, the wearable robot could eventually be part of your clothing. You're right. The, the net effect of any new uh, technology. So let's say you make uh, some device way more energy efficient. Does does it then use less energy? It does if it's used in exactly the same way, but not if the use changes, which always does happen to some degree. So yeah, if we if we make mobile robots or assembly line robots way more energy efficient, and as a consequence, people choose to have them operate more often, uh, then you could increase energy consumption. And there's a, a close parallel in humans, of course, that could actually be uh, beneficial, which is, you know, the, the first thought of many people when they hear, oh, you're, you're making these devices to reduce the effort of walking, reduce energy consumption of walking. Don't we have an obesity ep epidemic in this country? Yeah. I mean, and that can just make people fatter. That's a, that's a big problem. Um, and and it, it could happen. So if people's activity stayed exactly the same and you make every step cost less metabolic energy, then of course people will spend less energy and get less exercise. But just in the way that, you know, uh, these changes, these scooters and other uh, new tools in our lives change our behavior. If we make walking, each step of walking a little bit easier, it may well be that people take a lot more steps during the day, choose to be more active, and they could end up expending a lot more energy over the course of the day. There was a fun study from UC Boulder. I don't remember the full author list, but I, I remember Roger Crom was, was part of the study where they gave people bikes. They gave them either electric assist bikes or just regular pedal powered bikes. And they measured the amount of cycling people did in uh, a week. And they sent them home two for weeks and they were instrumented so they could tell how far they'd gone. And people, I think it was like four times as much cycling was done by the people with the e-assist bikes. Hmm. Um, unfortunately, they did not measure the amount of exercise 
that right. people got from that activity. But depending on the level of uh, assist, it could easily be that people got a lot more exercise from cycling um, in the assisted case than in the unassisted case. And so we we still don't have the exoskeleton and prosthesis technology we need to do that study uh, for those kinds of devices. We need like really reliable devices that consistently make a large improvement in the effort of walking to see whether to see what the net effect is on energy expenditure and and um, activity. But I'm of the camp that expects my hypothesis is that people actually will be more active when using these devices and there'll be yeah. a net health benefit. But it remains to be seen in some, you know, well controlled. I think it's good to be optimistic. <laughs> I'm glad we did, we went down this path because I, I think these are big ideas that we all need to keep in mind to kind of help us rationalize and question, you know, what, what this field is all about, um, what we're hoping to achieve. We've talked, uh, we've been talking about devices with batteries, but uh, a big tenet of your work has also been uh, building clever passive mechanisms. Um, how do you kind of, how do you think about that uh, choice uh, that you as the designer have to make, whether to bring in power uh, or to sort of avoid uh, the need for motors and batteries? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you could think of it as sort of one end of the, of the spectrum, right? The, the most energy efficient robot is one that uses no electricity at all. And it's a kind of a, a fun space to explore and see, you know, what can you, what can you do without uh, motors and batteries? And it is sort of a step change uh, because if you can get to zero, then your system can become a lot simpler and cheaper. And um, potentially if it's nice and elegant and so on, it could be more reliable in some ways. But when you don't have any computer controlled inputs to the system, the range of complexity of behaviors that can be exhibited does decrease quite a bit. Um, you know, you can, the idea of mechanical intelligence is, has had a, a, a following in, in our uh, fields for uh, a few decades. Uh, and there are some good examples. The passenger network walkers are one. There are some cool, like, you know, spring mechanisms that do self-balancing uh, gravity cancellation. In, you can you can make arguments about mechanical intelligence built into uh, muscle physiology. Uh, you know, like the, the the passive responses of muscles to changes in length or or velocity. That's sort of somewhere somewhere in the in the at the border between passive and active. But it, it, it's just you know your, your mechanism has to get very complex to have anything like the level of sophistication you can encode into. Uh, computer-controlled, software-controlled device. So you, you should expect to have a lot better versatility uh, and robustness in those in those kinds of systems. The ideal paradigm where you can ask these questions, you know, free from the constraints of needing to build a portable uh, system, you can ask, uh, you know, questions about what the ideal torque profile looks like and what sort of mechanisms or motors might you need to achieve that. You, uh, of course, envisioned off-board actuated wearable robots uh, long before Humotech even existed. And, you know, we, we built the first systems together in the lab. 
you know, building what became today the the Caplex system. Yeah, and 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 you've done all sorts of interesting things, built crazy custom end effectors and advanced algorithms. There's there's so much. I, I, I'm wondering if you could kind of share maybe some of the highlights for you, uh, the phases of work where you you know used emulation to kind of unlock the next big thing. Yeah, there's a, so there's a lot in so I, I want to mention just quickly that the the big the sort of core idea here was really um, it came from bouncing ideas around uh, in the lab. I was in our closed lab back in the aughts with people like Peter Adamchek and uh, Greg Sawicki and Sean O'Connor, and um, I think it was Peter that said what we really need is superfoot that was what he called it um a, a prosthesis can do anything then we can test all the ideas that we want to test and that really stuck with me through my i, I did a postdoc in the netherlands with uh and met Hermann van der Koy and his group and they had these tethered exoskeletons that were used a little differently than uh, the way we're using these emulators but there's still you know some features of that approach that resonated and seemed like oh that that could really work well and I, I think eventually this distilled down to that. But by the time I was starting, you know, with you as my first PhD student uh, back at Carnegie Mellon in 2010, um, the, the idea was that the sort of philosophy behind this approach is that humans are really complicated, and so it's very difficult to predict how they're going to respond to some wearable device, and we need to accept that, embrace that fact, and. The, impl- the, the first implication is that our ideas for designs that are going to help people will probably fail most of the time. And so instead of putting a lot of effort into a beautiful embodiment of our intuition-based or simple model-based design for an assistive device, we should, and then you know, we'll find out that it fails, we should instead make systems that are really versatile that allow us to try many, many different ideas for assisting people without building new hardware. And that's what emulators are. It's designing for versatility rather than designing for high performance in one specific mode. So if you have that sort of virtual reality system where you can get that physical experience of interacting with lots of devices, then your your odds of the space of possible devices, including something that is beneficial, go way up. And and that's especially true if you have tools for searching the space systematically like human in the loop optimization. And so um, I guess the, the sort of highlight of, and, and on my lab for, for this approach, would be our development trajectory for ankle exoskeletons. So we started out with emulation and we did some parameter studies and hand tuning and, and got you know some, some modest improvements in energy economy compared to, you know, walking with the device turned off. This was, you know, Rachel Jackson's work back in the day. And then we introduced cumulative optimization. You know, Sean uh, led that work in our lab and got these much larger improvements, uh, the benefits of assistance with the ankle exoskeleton went way up. And we continued to refine the work, looking at the effects of training. Uh, Katie Pognancy led that, that uh, thrust in our lab. And, you know, with bilateral devices, and eventually we felt like, okay, we, we really have it down. We've got a, a, a 
behavior of these ankle exoskeletons that delivers these large improvements in energy economy. Now, can we turn that into an untethered device with similar capabilities? And the answer is yes. Actually, that's pretty fairly easy. That was uh, Patrick Slade um, did that work here at, at Stanford, and it was about, I don't know, a little less than a year to go from the design specifications we got with the emulator to an untethered device that invited them with, you know, it's lightweight and, and ran as long as we needed to run. And then taking it one step further, the emulator uh, allowed us to collect more easily than possible with a, an untethered device. This large set of data that we could then learn models from and that were embeddable into this untethered device where we don't have all the laboratory equipment for measuring energy cost and so on, so that we could even do the optimization out in the real world with an untethered device. Uh, so that, I mean, you know, emulation's just central to that process and it was the secret to our success in this combination of emulation and optimization. And that Could device you, to me is like, yeah, yeah. Could you speak a little more to uh, directly to the point about how collecting data with the emulator enabled portable device to be developed more effectively? Because I think at a, at a fairly high level, this makes intuitive sense to people. Um, but exactly how you baked that cake, uh, I think would be interesting to describe a little more. Sure. Yeah. Well, to be honest, we did not set out um, in, in the experiments we performed where we collect a lot of data with the intention of uh, collecting training data for models. It was just uh, serendipity that, um, mm. you know, we started to do some machine learning work in, in the lab and, hey, we had this big training data set. You know, we... we always plan we knew that the training that the data set was important and that people would be able to uh go into it to to address questions they might have about how people use exoskeletons ankle exoskeletons and how they learn to use them but it all it turns out it also is a it was a great data set for learning a model that can classify uh different exoskeleton behaviors to see which one is uh better in terms of improving energy contribution. But yeah, so why are emulators good for gathering data for, for uh, learning models? And I mean, for, first, it's important to say the main problem we have in applying ML techniques in prosthetic limbs and exoskeletons is that we don't have enough training data, right? That's the, our main obstacle. If you've got, if you can just scrape the internet, then you can develop these billion parameter models uh, of natural language, but we just don't have anything like that. So a big challenge for our field right now is to try to get those data sets so we can learn models of you know, just how the nervous system responds to different environmental conditions, how it learns, how to use things, um, and specifically how people respond to different wearable devices. That category, I think emulators are a great key be tool because, you know, uh, if anybody who's worked with a product like device knows it's just, there's all this additional overhead. You've got this specialized thing. Everything's right on the edge of its engineering tolerances and safety factor. And, and uh, you're constantly changing out batteries and having motors overheat and all that stuff. But with this big box of motors <laughs> sitting over there on the other side of the room and this big stack of computers, 
you know, that just that stuff just works. Especially, at, you know, I'm not. You remember the full trajectory of this hardware in our lab back when you started on this stuff. You know, the research tools we developed were not the most reliable <laughs> uh, pieces of hardware. You know, it, it's which is always the case, right? Um, but now, I mean, now that you have this great company, Hewlett-Tech, that's developed, engineered these great, uh, really uh, bulletproof uh, solutions. And, you know, that's what we use in the lab and that's a real asset. So it just works. You know, we, we've been using those uh, Hewlett Tech systems for what, six years now and we've, nothing is broken so far. You know, it's like, and we've done hundreds and hundreds, probably um, a few thousand hours of data collections with exoskeletons, various exoskeletons and prosthetic limbs um, without, you know, without a breakdown. In, in the in, to get that thanks to the, yeah yeah well it's true um i'm allowed to be a little proud of my <laughs> my four phd student out there doing awesome stuff in the world but um yeah so so with it, it in uh in the case of the training data set we used for the for the untethered exoskeleton study that was several thousand different exoskeleton conditions and i think it was 120 150 hours of data collections in the laboratory. And it's just the overhead for doing that with a tethered laboratory-based system is just wait. So um, for the engineers that are engaged in the R&D uh, that we're talking about, I feel like I I generally have a, a fairly easy time kind of describing the merits of this approach. Um, but to those uh, who are kind of viewing the work from afar or at a higher level, speaking about the value of emulation for the industry, I feel like one of the key missing data points is commercial success of devices developed from R&D out into the real world using uh, emulation. A, I'm curious for your thoughts on uh, where your portable ankle exo is going. Maybe we should start another company. Um, and yeah. uh, and B, kind of, how do you see this proliferating? Um, Humotech has worked hard in in kind of building these systems. We've built over 25 of them now. But uh, yeah, it, it's a it's a slow to evolve uh, market. Well, totally. And I, you know, I'm appreciative of the choir here, of course, but. Uh, I do think it has a lot of value. So maybe first thing to, to say is that the name of the game early in the development of a new system device is versatility in the hardware. So now emulators are not the only way to get there, right? You, you can imagine uh, different ways of, uh, of having a, a reconfigurable or highly versatile system. You know, there's even passive devices where you just like go in and tune a few parameters. And if, let's say you're only interested in passive prosthetic lens or something, you could have a manually adjustable device. But an emulator, you know, it makes things a lot easier and it allows you to explore this bigger space of control strategies. So if we're talking about research and development, I mean, I I, I will not be starting a project for uh, a robot that's going to interact with a human that isn't that doesn't start with some emulation base that I, I can tell you that for in my career if you want if you want to explore passive devices you emulate the passive device 
with a robotic system. And then you can capture a much wider range uh, because there's all kinds of crazy, interesting mechanisms and components that you could put into a passive device. Uh-huh. And it would just be really annoying to, to be uh, trying to come up with a hardware system that, that allows you to swap things. In. And then you could also see this being used for prescription. And I've, I've, been, I've been following your work in this area with a lot of excitement and anticipation. I, I'm I'm eager to, to see what uh, what you and the BA team have come up with here. But uh, it seems like a, a great application to have people be able to try, you know, get that get that experience of using lots of different kinds of device while using one tethered emulator, and then after that, you have objective clinical evidence that there will be some benefits to the particular device that they end up uh, being prescribed and, and you know, the, the, the best settings and, and um, configuration of that device. And you can imagine a similar thing that you can see that in like a clinical setting or in a commercial setting. Yeah. But as you say, a, a challenge at, at the moment is just that we're, we are pretty early in the, the trajectory of, wearable robotic devices, there aren't six, you know, examples of really widely used uh, products out there yet. But, but I think that the main reason uh, that's, that that's true is because we just haven't had devices yet that do deliver a big enough benefit in performance to outweigh all the overhead in terms of, I have to put this thing on and, you know, there is going to be some amount of uh discomfort at the interface right uh, you know sometimes minimal but something and you gotta you gotta buy it and you gotta you gotta charge it and all all these things in order to justify all of that overhead the, the performance enhancement has to be big and you see this in in some of the prosthetic limb uh commercial products out there where you know the, the classic example is very fancy upper limb prosthesis and the you talk to the prosthetist and they'll tell you yeah those things People get them and then they sit on the shelf because all that overhead is too much for the small enhancement in performance. But when we get the performance that that you know, these devices theoretically could deliver to a person, you know, then I think we're, there's going to be a product that takes off, right? And we're I think we're there. You know, we we finally we we've really cracked for ankle exoskeletons, for example. We've cracked it. You know, we've got people walking around campus with a device that's automatically adjusting to their needs. And improving their cost of transport uh, by what fifteen percent or something, so and increasing their speed by ten percent at the same time. That's uh, that's pretty good, you know. That's that's in the neighborhood of, of things that say an older adult might might use to get across the street while the lights still on walk or uh, where. I agree with you entirely uh, that we're there. Um, so don't take this the wrong way, but the old uh, mm-hmm. startup uh, sort of cliche is 10 times better or 10 times cheaper, ideally both. So what's the baseline on the ankle XO? <laughs> <laughs> what are we comparing to when we make that pitch? Yeah, I, I think, you know, if you're 10X, boy, that's <laughs> uh, that's great. Or if you're providing some just just completely new functionality that people can uh, can imagine changing their lives in some way. That's great, but for for people, um, pretty small changes in some of these performance outcomes does influence behavior. So, uh, 
it, it with energy economy, which you know, as you mentioned, has, has been something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. There's lots of different important outcomes, but uh, if you're just thinking about energy use, people will change their behavior to save just a few percent in uh, uh, in metabolic rate. Like, why do you swing your arms when you walk? Um, it's kind of weird, right? Uh, your arms aren't touching the ground. They don't have this any direct benefit and that is obvious, but it turns out that they have this indirect benefit to your leg muscles by reducing changes in angular momentum of your body, about vertical axis, and it saves you about 7% uh, energy cost compared to putting your hands in your pockets. And so uh, just 7%, but everybody is trying to gain that 7%. And um, people like, you know, we know Shrin Boston have done just this big series of experiments showing all these different ways that people will say, choose a, and maybe Sutipati, choose a path that curves in just the right way to save a few percent uh, of energy cost. So unconsciously, we're always paying quite close attention to uh, these kinds of outcomes and you know, clinically meaningful benefits, I think, are on the order of 10%. Now there's, you know, maybe the threshold's higher. Maybe you've got, you know, work out of Elliot Rouse's lab suggesting, oh, people can't perceive the, the difference reliably until it's higher, like 20%. But, um, you know, that that it could end up being sort of a, on the high end of the perceptible thresholds, depending on the details of the devices <clears throat> and it, it, whatever it is, I think we're going to hit those barriers really soon if we haven't already. I find that very convincing. Um, this has been a recurring theme on the podcast. I feel like we, um, many of us are yearning for more studies, more collaborations that are in the realm of kind of more decision science. Like how, how, how do people choose between different uh, ways of doing things? And what outcomes uh, are they optimizing for? You alluded this. You alluded to this earlier on, um, you know, the importance of of energy efficiency and and minimizing metabolic costs, uh, of course, while also acknowledging, you know, the importance of of these other factors. I'm curious if you're, uh, you know, in in together uh, during my PhD work, we we dabbled uh, a bit in kind of collecting a, a range of outcome measures and, and kind of comparing and contrasting uh, optimal device selection based on different factors. But since we work together, you've uh, gotten uh, a lot more clever and automated in the techniques for optimization. I'm curious if you have a vision for sort of multi-outcome simultaneous optimization. Is that something you've been getting involved in? Oh, sure. Well, we uh, we have a, a paper that's in review right now on some types of optimizing speed and energy economy for older adults. Um, and, I, you know, the, the optimization approach, I think, changes relatively little when you add more terms to the objective function. It's just, um, well, you know, I should be careful that depending on the complexity of the landscape and uh, any sort of nonlinear interactions that that are introduced, you know, the op it could take longer to optimize. You might you might have increased risk of getting stuck in local minima, things like that. But the approach itself is very similar, regardless of what your objective function is, how many terms there are in it. Um, I think a really interesting problem is 
trying to identify the terms in the objective function that the human nervous system cares about and um, and their weights. And you know, we have some ideas about these things based on intuition and, and uh, you know our own experience moving through the world. But I think a data-driven approach to try and identify those costs and weights would be really powerful. And I think that um, we're we're getting close to having the capabilities of doing that. You know, the, the so inverse optimization, and in, there are various ways of doing it, but they generally require a lot more time than optimization. Right? Uh, you could think of it as one one sort of straightforward approach is optimize iteratively to uh, uh, to see what's preferred among the, the different optimized approaches. So it, it, you need a lot of data. You need a lot of uh, human robot interaction data, but with these more and more reliable hardware systems, and as we're getting to devices that we might be able to send home with people and collect lots and lots of data, then I think we're going to we're have the opportunity to, to answer that question. What is the nervous system trying to accomplish? And a sort of related question there is, what are the constraints that the nervous system might be facing? And, and that's thorny and um, very vague, vaguely defined at the moment. But that could prove to be important for understanding, uh, predicting how people respond to these kinds of devices. Very cool. I think there's a a macro level consideration here, which is that in an aging world with a high prevalence of mobility disorders and a seemingly uh, kind of sh- shrinking pool of expert clinicians. Uh, to to make decisions about design and, and prescription, um, there is a growing need for uh, automated methods, um, AI based methods for for assisting with this process. But it's my belief that there's still going to be a very important role uh, for the the clinician, uh, you know, their their intuition and their subjective op- uh, kind of opinions uh, do have value. As well as the subject, subjective impressions of of the individual, so I guess maybe there's a dream state where we reverse engineer the the human uh, to the point where we don't need to talk about it, and <laughs> we could just uh, see what the computer comes up with. But uh, I I think realistically, there's a period of kind of shared decision making where the algorithms are working together with the humans. Um, and maybe the algorithms assist the human in making a decision or the humans, I don't know, kind of police or guide the algorithm in some way. But uh, yeah, I'm curious what your opinion on that is, um, how we, we kind of yeah. balance the subjective and objective. Totally. I, I agree with that framing. I think in the long term, um, we probably will be able to automate the process of uh, prescription to a high degree, but we're still in this phase where, again, you need the uh, training data to learn the, those models, right? So you could you could learn a model of prosthetist. Um, <laughs> you you learn the model of professor teaching courses in mechanical design um, if you have the right data set, and so you need to measure all these very complex factors that might not be so obvious, like what is it that the process is really paying attention to in their patient? Might be lots of things that some things they might not even be consciously aware of. 
So you have, you have to start by taking a lot of measurements of the individual. And then some of those measurements might require some form of interaction, right? They might require asking the person to do something. And so that, that could be uh, an added challenge. And then you need successful prescriptions or device designs to uh, to work from. You know, you know we, we have a, a, a good bit with, with, with the standard of care devices. We have a really, you know, a big set of prescriptions that we could potentially learn from. But with these new devices, you know, robotic devices, we, we have extremely, again, extremely little, little data. So it feels to me like this is something where um, we'd have to take, we'd have to make that an active project. We're not going to be passively collecting the data that's needed probably because we're not getting the characteristics from patients that we really need yet uh, in some, you know, form that's suitable to, to learning uh, data-driven approaches. And then we need to get to a point where we are having really successful experiences with these new this new class of devices and then and that's decades right and, and then it's po- i think it's possible to sidestep the optimization stuff that we're doing and jump straight to the device that the person needs so for example with our ankle exoskeletons where we've done a lot of work we can learn a model that does the, the optimization based just on exoskeleton angles but we can't we don't have enough data to learn a model of what control settings will be best for this person and all the characteristics we've looked at to try to predict what will the benefits be or what will the, the ideal parameters be have not worked um you know we're just looking at 10 20 participants it's just not nearly enough data and we have also you know certainly have not measured all the characteristics of that. so that's a that's a uh 50 year kind of um, yeah but we'll get there best. interesting I think as a you know folks engaged in this field, we have to be careful to not um, frame this as like a, a binary outcome. Um, being yeah. in Pittsburgh and and being a gearhead, I think a lot about cars and the autonomous driving industry, which I'm by no means an expert on, but <laughs> lots of folks out there that are kind of driving towards fully uh, autonomous vehicles, and there's there's just so many challenges with this. It, it just it's it doesn't work. It's not practical yet, and uh, yet there are all these uh, aspects of that technology development uh, that are they're relevant to sort of AI assisted driving, uh, where you have the the person and the and the machine working together. And over the decades of deployment of that technology, you're you're collecting more and more data. Um, you're still, you're enabling, you're working towards uh, that, that big goal, um, which may be pretty far out in the distance, but uh, it's, it's still something that, that kind of can drive the field. I wanted to touch on uh, my view anyway of, of the data collecting effort, which is that it's much bigger than, than any one of us. I at Humotech am not going to be able to effectively collect the massive amounts of data uh, to do the things that we want to do alone. Similarly, I mean, in your lab, you're limited. Somehow, we all need to kind of work together to to kind of pool data and, and kind of share insights um, and then be able to extract uh, value. I have recently become aware of a really interesting uh, effort which if you haven't heard about it, I suggest looking it up. Um, it's called the Limb Loss uh, Preservation Registry. Limb mm. Loss and Preservation Registry. They are collecting data from the electronic health records 
uh, of patients who have experienced amputation. So every time uh, that in a participating hospital or clinic, there is an am amputation related uh, kind of entry into the database, the patient record is downloaded and all sorts of demographics and, and kind of information about the, the individual and their prosthesis um, is stored. Anyway, I think it's really exciting to start to see this coalescence, to be talking to people like yourself that are kind of see this future that like we need more data and data is going to unlock all this opportunity um, and to also see it happening on the health system side. I think we're, we're headed towards something big. I, I totally agree. I, I had not heard about that uh, effort, but that is fantastic. I'm, that's exciting. Uh, we have been, uh, a few of us at Stanford have been working uh, along similar lines, uh, but for just the, this, the general case of gathering biomechanics data to try to learn models of human motor control and um, adaptation. And so uh, it's called Ad Biomechanics, is, and this is a, a website you can go to right now. The idea here is that we want high quality motion capture data, uh, ideally with you know forces and marker data and muscle activity and, and every, everything we can get in a consistent format so that you, you start to generate the, the amount of data that's required to learn these complex models. But of course, sharing data in a consistent format is a lot of overhead mm -hmm. and people just don't do it. There's been lots of uh, ways that you could do that in the past, but you know, it's like as a busy graduate student, uh, I got, oh, and I need to answer these emails. I don't have time to spend a day reformatting everything to fit at the database. So mm -hmm. uh, to make this more appealing and attractive, the, the website does a service for the user. And what it does is, um, it handles the uh, open sim scaling and adjustment to make the dynamics consistent for your data set. So what you do is you uh, feed in marker trajectories and forces, and it gives you a scaled open sim model and the inverse kinematics and inverse dynamics, which decides it's about a day's worth of work per subject that is done for you automatically a few minutes by... Hmm add biomechanics and we're working on wow anything that the functionality so it'll do like marker gap filling and labeling and those sorts of things as well so that it that the hope is we can dramatically reduce the barrier to collecting motion capture data make it a lot easier so that people collect a lot more while simultaneously aggregating things into a big database that's publicly accessible that's all in the same format so that you can apply AI ML techniques to it Geez, I'm jealous of all the PhD students uh, studying today who have access to all these tools. <laughs> I know, oh, man. I just yeah. the many hours sitting in the basement of uh, the CCRB at Michigan campus, gap filling. Oh my gosh, many a many a, a Friday night actually. <laughs> For me, it was Ween Hall at Carnegie Mellon. Yeah. Um, that's really cool. I need to learn more about that. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, get the URL for Ad Biomechanics and share it in the show notes. Um, right on. And this is uh, this will work with Karen and Scott. All right. Well, we're we're getting to the end here. Um, I got my two boilerplate questions um, for folks listening who uh, might be interested in working with you, either as a student in your lab or a collaborator. Um, 
can you just share with everyone how to find you online and, and the best way to contact you? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, our website is biomechatronics.stanford.edu. And I maintain it myself. We've got all of our papers and videos and uh, some, you know, just random photos from lab fence and stuff like that. Uh, worth checking out. And um, I do everything by email. So send me a note um, if you're interested in collaborating or uh, joining the group. Super. Yes, I can attest to you having an excellent uh, lab webpage. Thanks for maintaining that. So, if, uh, yeah, finally, uh, I was hoping, Steve, you could share a call to action with our audience. A call to action. So um, how, how, how do people, what's the, what is the definition of a call to action in this context? Are you talking about particular projects or uh, an approach to research or what, what's, uh, what do you have in mind? I'm intentionally vague here. I'm hoping you can uh, inspire a, a listener or two or a hundred. I don't know how many listeners we have uh, to go out and do something differently uh, now that they've listened to this podcast. I would say, um, I guess I, 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 I can speak to uh, people that maybe are on a similar journey to myself. Uh, I started out as a mechanical engineer, really focused on robotics and and mechanical systems. And when I shifted to devices that interact with humans, I thought of the human as a robot. Uh, and it's, it's sort of embarrassing to say it that simply and straightforwardly, but I think secretly a lot of us do think about the human being as this mechanical system. And of course, in some ways that analogy is apt, you know, we're all subject to Newton's laws of motion and everything, but in many important ways, we're just very different from robots in the way that our muscles work in the, and especially in the way that our nervous system works to coordinate our motions. And I think um, I, I implore those uh, working on these kinds of devices to accept the, that the human is so complicated that your intuition about how they work is wrong, probably, and, <laughs> and, um, and not to drive projects and spend years uh, working based on a guess as to what people want, but but get to experiments with people as fast as possible and, and, and really learn from those human users uh, at, at as much as possible, as early as possible to guide your project. Uh, because I, I think that that is just, it's essential for, for developing devices that actually deliver functional benefits to people. And, um, and also, you know, working with people to find out what those what those functional benefits are that they that they uh, that they need, and 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 to take a systematic approach to this. You know, I have these. You know, I've been promoting these tools and, and methods, but any kind of systematic approach that thoughtfully reflects this central challenge is welcome and needed, and likely to lead to the kinds of big advancements and breakthroughs that we really need as a field to to get to that cost benefit balance that. Is, is necessary for these products to really gain commercial success and thereby be used by people to improve their lives. I love that advice, Steve. Thank you. I think we could all stand uh, to spend more time uh, just being friends, allies to uh, the people we're, we're intending to benefit. With that, that's the end. Thanks everyone for listening. <laughs>